Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke 2, 8 to 20. I, uh, I'm going I'm to shock you for just a second, so just be prepared to be shocked. Some of you are already smiling. You just, uh, I was not always the physical specimen that you see in front of you today. I was not, I didn't always have the athletic prowess that I do today. When I was nine or ten years old, there was, I can't remember exactly how, somewhere around there, there was this Gatorade commercial that came out. I want to be like Mike. You remember this? It was Michael Jordan on the commercial, and he was playing with basketball with all these kids, and, and people in the park were playing basketball, and it would show this picture, this video clip that's very famous now of Michael Jordan in the finals, driving down the lane against the L.A. Lakers, goes up for a layup with his right hand, and then just kind of hovers there in midair for 8, 10, 12 seconds, what felt like an eternity where he considers the philosophy of a layup, and then decides, you know what, I think I want to do this left-handed, and switches to his left hand, and then goes, yeah, I think I do, as all the other Lakers just kind of pass out in front of him, and then he just lays it in like it's nothing. And I remember seeing that commercial, uh, that Gatorade commercial, and thinking to myself, oh man, I want to be like Michael Jordan. Now, mind you, when I went out and played basketball in my backyard, if I jumped toward the hoop, you could not slide a credit card underneath my feet. I don't know how many traveling violations there were to reproduce the shot that I was watching on TV, but needless to say, I wanted to emulate Michael Jordan, who is my hero. Now, we naturally emulate the people that we look up to, and that doesn't stop, believe it or not, when we leave childhood. We emulate adults that we look up to, all right? Any of y'all watched HGTV? Y'all remember Joanna Gaines? Don't pretend like the shiplap in your house was something that you just thought of one day and decided to paint farmhouse white, right? You didn't just decide to reclaim all the wood and put it up on your walls. You watched HGTV and you wanted to emulate what you saw there. Our vocabulary is shaped by the people that we see, the things that we say and things like that, words that become popular and fade in and out over time are all influenced by people that we want to emulate. This morning in our passage, God is ready to make an announcement to His creation that their Savior has come. And He does it to an unexpected crowd. You might think that when God announces the, the birth of the Savior of mankind, that He would do that from the tops of the hills. But He doesn't. He does it to an unexpected crowd, and it's that crowd that we see throughout the Gospels God is telling us to emulate as His followers. Let's, let's look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this word that we have read, that the meaning of it would become evident to us, that what we see here would be made known to us, that you would, through your Spirit, open our eyes to see and open our hearts to obey what you have put before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just before uh, this Christmas series began, uh, we finished up the book of Matthew, and, and one thing that was you could see pretty easily going throughout the reading of, of that gospel is how the rich are often criticized and how the poor are often elevated. And, and you see this come back time and time again. In fact, there's a, a well-known passage that you're probably most all of you are familiar with that appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where a rich man comes before Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, basically, sell everything you have and come and follow me. And the Bible says he, he walked away sad because he had a lot of possessions. And ultimately, the rich man walks away and Jesus tells, turns to his disciples and he says to them in Matthew 19, 23 and 24, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I think it's, it's right here in passages like these where a lot of us as Americans get really uncomfortable and, and, and the, the long and short of it is that we are a, the wealthiest nation that has ever existed in the history of mankind. And sitting amongst us in this room are people wealthier than kings in history past. We all are considered in the world's standards to be very, very rich. And I think it's right that when we read passages like this, that we naturally walk away with a little bit of discomfort. That we feel a little bit of, I don't know, anxiety maybe welling up in us because we, we see ourselves perhaps as this rich man and we hear Jesus saying to us, sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And I, I think that maybe we walk away from those passages with the nagging question in our mind, 
am I the rich man? Am I the one for whom the possessions are, are really just too important? If Jesus were to come to me right now and were to say to me, hey, sell everything you own and come and follow me, would I do it? At the same time, I think we need to understand what we're being told here in the Gospels. What's actually being said to us. You've heard me preach against the prosperity gospel. The, the basic message of the prosperity gospel is the notion that God's desire for you in the here and now is to give you health and wealth and prosperity in response to your faith. So you believe, and the more you believe, the more He rewards. And you can see the faultiness within that logic. It's actually utter rubbish. And the reason we know is because the most faithful person of all time, Jesus Christ, died on a cross. That was His reward. Paul, who most of us in this room, I think if we're just dead honest, would say he's probably second. Now he's a distant second, but he's, he's, he's a lot further along than I was, right? Was beheaded. Peter, maybe we'd put him third, I don't know. Crucified upside down. The disciples, pretty much all of them, tortured in myriad ways, most of them killed. But you understand that it's possible to avoid the ditch of the prosperity gospel and steer right into the ditch of the poverty gospel, which is exactly the opposite of the prosperity gospel. It's actually the same in the sense that it really preaches about the same thing, but it, it gets you there in completely opposite ways. It says, if I want God to be pleased with me, then I have to sell everything I own and live in absolute squalor. And it's only in squalor that God will actually be pleased with us. You understand that anything you have to add to Jesus is not the gospel. So it's possible to steer away from the prosperity gospel and still steer right into the ditch of the poverty gospel. So our goal really should be to understand what is meant what Jesus means here, and all of those kinds of things. And, and, and we find throughout Matthew that the poor are not simply people who have no money, but people who, in spite of what money they either do or don't have, are completely dependent on the Lord for everything. Their dependence, their desires, their hope, their joy, their trust, lies completely in the Lord and not in their own wealth. They may have tons of money, or they may not have any money at all, and you wouldn't really know because all they seem to speak about, all they seem to love, all they seem to really care about is their relationship with the Lord. That seems to be where all of their hope lies. This is what Jesus is saying is really difficult for a wealthy person to emulate. It's difficult for a wealthy person to have that kind of dependence because it's so easy for them to become ensnared by the deceitfulness of riches. It provides for you such entertainment and luxury, such satisfaction, and it entices you to depend on it. 
But on the other side, the poor can also have their troubles with poverty as well. Their poverty can tempt them to steal, to lie, to manipulate, to otherwise try to get their way. They demonstrate through that that they don't depend on the Lord either. Each one can be tempted. Now, I think the reason why this is so important for our passage this morning is because the Savior of humanity is born. Christ the Lord has come to the earth. And the first audience to hear the news of His appearance is a group of poor shepherds. Completely impoverished shepherds. In fact, Luke's Gospel is chock full of language about the poor, about the exaltation of the poor. And it's basically Luke saying to everyone, listen, this good news that's coming is not for the rich. It is even for you. Are you lost in squalor? Do you have seemingly no hope? Are you dependent only on God for your next meal? There's good news. Jesus has come for you too. This is not a gospel merely for the rich. The king is not here to serve only the upper class. The king of all humanity, the savior of the world has come. And this good news is for you. Matthew will say, blessed are the poor in spirit. He records Jesus as saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke in his gospel says, blessed are the poor. Leaves off the in spirit, leaves that for you to figure out. If that's what it means. But if you're going to fully appreciate what's happening in this passage, we really need to consider the context of what's going on. Remember at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 2, if you want to look back up there in your Bibles, there's a decree in the first verse that goes out from Caesar Augustus. We're going to count every last one of you. And there's a, a, a really good reason that the Roman Empire wants to count everyone, and that is for tax purposes, right? We want to make sure that what we have at the end of the tax season is what we're supposed to have at the end of the tax season based on the counting of everyone. So everyone in the Roman Empire... The known world at the time, it says, goes to be counted. Of course, it's also, you know, it's to pad the pockets. It's to line the coffers of the, the wealthy, the emperor, the Roman Empire, and its mission. Now, of course, this is also the part of God's plan to ensure that Mary and Joseph get down to Bethlehem so that the Christ child can be born in Bethlehem as the prophets of the Old Testament have said. But what we should note in the passage that we're in this morning is that this passage takes place against the backdrop of Caesar's decree to all the world. So Caesar has put out an announcement to all the world that you're to be counted, you're to be registered. And then by the end of the passage, what do we find in verse 7? That the king of all the universe is born. And where is he born? Is he born in a palace filled with gold? Do we have the battle of two prestigious kings? No. We have one who's sitting in a palace making a decree across all the known world. I am going to count all of you so that I may have all the money that I'm entitled. And at the end you have the king of the universe being born 
in a manger. So in seven verses, we've gone from king of all the world to king of the universe, and the two couldn't be any more different from one another. One is registering people so that he might get from them. The other is coming to his people that he might give to them. You see. One makes his decree from his palace. The other comes to a place fit only for animals. But both are announcing. Caesar, through his decree to the known world, that they must be counted But God is taking a different approach. So we've seen Caesar's announcement, and now we see God's announcement. And we see first, I want you to pay attention, that the news comes to the lowest of the low. It's the first thing that we see. Notice notice here first to whom the announcement comes. It comes to shepherds in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. Now there might not be a poorer group in all of society. What, What would be a poorer representation than being laid in a manger for your bed. Well, having to sleep outdoors because you have no bed. That might be the only thing poorer. And so we find exactly that. Here are a group of shepherds sitting out in a field, keeping watch over their flock. And why are they watching their flock? So that their animals are not either stolen or killed by a predator. These are people that keep track Only of animals all the time. You can't imagine too much money being involved in that. We don't know how they were treated, whether they were seen as the reprobates of society or not. But what we do know is they were incredibly poor. The poorest of the poor. Having no place to lay their head. In fact, this one baby being born will also be a shepherd and he will make known to all of those who follow him that I too have no place to lay my head. But then... I want you to see that the news comes through the highest of the high. So it comes to the lowest of the low, but it comes through the highest of the high. Notice who this announcement comes through. Who is it? It's first an angel of the Lord. And then suddenly by the the middle of the passage, it's a whole legion of angels lighting up the night sky before these shepherds. Now, there isn't more prestigious of an emissary to come bearing the good news of the gospel than one of these warriors of light. In fact, every time you see them appear nearly throughout all of Scripture, the people that encounter them fall forward on their face as though they were dead men. We just read a passage not too long ago at the close of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus rises from the dead and an angel descends, rolls back the stone, and his appearance was like lightning, and at the sight of him all of the men who were guarding the tomb fell down catatonic, fell down as though dead. They couldn't move. We see this time and again in Revelation and in various places where animals respond, where people bow down and are tempted to worship these warriors of light. There's no more prestigious of an emissary to come bearing the news of the gospel than an angel. But then I want you to see that the news comes as a heavenly contrast. The news comes as a heavenly contrast. You might say a contrast to what? Well, this whole passage has actually been set up as a counter to Caesar Augustus, who's in the first verse. 
Look at what the angel says to them in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all, peop- all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel's phrasing here of his message that the Christ child has been born is with intention. On January 1st of 42 B.C., this is uh, almost 40 years before Jesus is born, a man by the name of Julius Caesar, you might have heard of him, he's pretty famous, was formally recognized as God in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire formally recognized Julius Caesar as God. His adopted son was named Gaius Octavius. Now, that would make Gaius Octavius, technically in the Roman Empire, the son of God. Gaius Octavius became Caesar in 27 B.C., and he was given the title Augustus, Caesar Augustus. The very same Caesar that we find in this passage. The name Augustus means venerable, respected, revered. So here is Caesar Augustus being born son of God. Now when Gaius Octavius, that is Caesar Augustus, was born... This was his birth announcement. I want you to listen to this. It's going to appear on the screen. You can watch it. Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them by making peace for land and sea. While cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons, the productivity of all things is good and at its prime. There are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present which fills all men. Does that sound familiar? It's not going to sound familiar. So that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. This is years before Jesus is born. Augustus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of all people, so to speak. I'm not saying He is. I'm saying this is what He thinks He is. Son of God, Savior of all people, bringer of peace and goodwill for all mankind. Now, I have little doubt that the script given to this angel to announce was given by God Himself because God has a long memory reaching back all the way into the history of when Caesar Augustus was born, recalling it, and wanting you to know and the shepherds to know. Listen, the one who's been born, whom I've sent, is the actual Son of God. What Caesar has promised, in fact, what every king has promised up to this point to fulfill, Jesus will actually do. See, the difference between Caesar and Jesus in this passage even, and throughout history, is astounding. Caesar tells everyone that he is a savior of the common folk. And how does he do that? By a press release. 
which is how you normally communicate with the poor, right? Don't we all feel comforted when we watch press briefings on TV? When we see the White House communication stand up at the podium, whichever administration is in there, and say, we really care about you. You feel cared for? Do you? I'm doubting it. So naturally, Caesar releases a a press briefing and says, I'm the Savior of the common folk. But Jesus tells everyone that he is the Savior of the common folk by becoming poor himself and dying in the place of the poor. Dying in the place of those who need him most. Mind you, Caesar says he makes peace for land and sea. Jesus makes peace between God and man, and between man and man. Caesar counts all his people by decree, but you realize Jesus is counted among his people as a curse, dying for them, suffering the wrath of God, that they might be numbered among the children of God. So suddenly, after the angel announces this, he is surrounded by a host of angels. And what I find interesting about this host is that they're all praising God. And you might say to yourself, well, why is it interesting that they're praising God? Isn't that what angels do? Well, it's because when the angel first appears to them, the shepherds are the center of attention. The first angel that comes in tells the shepherds, listen, there's a Savior that's come to you. The shepherds are the center of attention. But when the skies are filled with the angels, the shepherds are no longer the center of attention. Who takes center stage at that point? God Himself. In fact, they come around filling up the night sky, singing praises to God, which means that what they're doing isn't a performance for the shepherds to applaud as if they're sitting in the audience. In fact, they're looking at the backs of the angels, if you will, as they're singing to the Lord Himself. They're invited to sing along. Join the chorus as we sing praises to God. What is it that we find the shepherds doing at the very end of this? See, the angels know about the birth of Christ. They've seen Christ. They know Him all too well. They know exactly what God is doing through Him. They know what God looks like. They celebrate around His throne every day. They well understand what they're doing. And they probably know, I would assume, that the shepherds are ignorant of all of this. That they're watching out in the field and they're just kind of caught up in what is happening right now. But you see, by the time the shepherds go and find the Christ child and see what the angels have seen, what do they walk away doing? They walk away singing the praises of God because they now have joined the chorus of angels and have been invited to sing along. So it comes as a heavenly contrast to all that Caesar Augustus represents, all that earthly government represents. But this news also comes as peace for God's people. It comes as peace 
for God's people. Notice that there is a paradox in what the angel, the singular angel says, versus what the chorus of angels sing. Look at verse 10. The angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. But then in verse 14, the choir sings, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The King James Version you may probably remember from certain songs we sing or from Charlie Brown uh, says, Peace, goodwill toward men. Uh, but that has been proven, not what Luke originally wrote in this gospel. He says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. But that seems to be a bit of a paradox between what the angel said, this news is for all the people, and then what the angels sing, this is for those among whom he is pleased. What is the explanation for the difference between those two? He says this news is, is for everyone. And he says even this news is good news. The angel is standing in front of him and says, this is great news for all the people. God has come to save His people from their sins in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's good news. And it's for all the world because there's not a singular person in this world that that news doesn't directly impact. The good news of Christ coming to the earth and ultimately dying for their sins and rising again on the third day impacts every single person. But it proves to be peace among those with whom He is pleased. Jesus is later going to say, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He says that members of households will even be set against one another for my name's sake. Which should raise the question for us. With whom is he pleased? There are several different places in the New Testament where I think we get an answer to that question. But one that I think is the most clear and the most concise because it has the same word in it that we see in our passage, is Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So I want you to just, I know we're not in Philippians right now, but just zoom into that passage for just a second. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. If you could just leave that up on the screen for a minute. He says that there are people in whom God works. And he's saying right here that the Philippians are some of those people. They're included. Wait, I know that. I've seen that in you. There are people in whom God works and you are among them. God, in other words, is doing a work and has done a work in the Philippians. He has come into them and He has changed them. And once He changes them, what is the result, does He say? It's twofold. There's two things He says. First, because of the work God does in them, they have a desire to please God. God works in you and then you will for Him. 
You have, you have a will, a desire now to please him because of God's initial action. And then the second thing, you actually do it. You will and you work. We think the desire comes first. Actually, the heart change that God provides comes first. Then the desire to please God comes. Then the actual working to, for his good pleasure. And what happens when they will and work for his good pleasure? Verse 12 says, they obey. That, that's what the working is. You will to please him. You work to please him. And the working is you obey him. So back to our passage. Who has peace? With whom is the Lord pleased? And the answer is, a people in whom He has done a work whereby He has changed their hearts so that they might desire and work to please Him. Let me say that again. With whom is the Lord pleased? It's a people in whom he has done a work whereby he has changed their hearts so that they might desire and work to please him. And these are marked by obedience. But now look at this transformation in the shepherds as they go. They find the baby that has been described to them. They find it just as it's been described to them. And they tell the people that, where, uh, that, that are around the, what they had seen. It, it seems that there's more than just Mary and Joseph probably now there. They probably heard the screams of giving birth and all those kinds of things. And there's probably many people that have come to see the lady who gave birth in a stable and whose baby is laying in, in, the, in the manger. And the shepherds show up and the people they tell the story to are amazed, but you understand not Mary. Mary is not merely amazed. What is she? She listens to their story, and it says she treasured these things in her heart, meaning she, she stored it away, and she tossed it to and fro in her heart, thinking about what's been told to her. And, and I don't know exactly. I would, could endlessly speculate as to why Luke tells us that. However, I think it might have a lot to do with how this gospel is going to End, or at least the penultimate ending when her own son, the one she gives birth to, will die on a cross and be buried in a tomb for three days. I have a feeling that it's at that point when Mary might think back on the things that she has treasured up in her heart. And it's probably in those darkest times where she's reminded of what the Lord has promised to her and all of the things that she has experienced. And that might be just maybe the thing that gets her through the darkness is resting on the promises of the Lord. But look at verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Don't forget that these shepherds are the poorest of the poor. But you remember that the story of Christmas season is that God has condescended in the person of the eternal Son of God to bring salvation to those with whom He is pleased. 
And he wants to make sure that we know full well that these people are comprised of those who, often like poor people, are humbled by life's circumstances. Who understand what their station is in life. Who know all too well that they are in desperate need of a Savior. Who are in a state of dependence upon God for provision of all sorts, not least of which their salvation These are ones that He has changed. These are ones that are marked by obedience. These are ones whom He has gone into their heart. He has opened their eyes to see their desperate need for Him. We have many idols. Figures that we want to emulate, that we look up to, people that we celebrate, even Christian celebrities, if you can imagine a more sickening thing. We're tempted to look up to them and emulate them. But let's not forget that our Savior became poor and laid in a manger. The first people He disclosed the news to were the poorest of the poor. And He came to preach, He says, good news to the poor. So maybe, just maybe, in our state of wealth in this country, we might be able to look to the impoverished among us and actually have a great deal that we would emulate. First of all, dependence on God for every morsel that enters our mouth. Perhaps we might emulate thanksgiving for everything that we receive. We're going to sit around a tree that we've brought into our house and decorated to the hilt and open presents and exchange them with one another. And we're going to participate in this and we're going to just totally turn our brains off to what's happened 2,000 years ago for us in the incarnation of Christ. But maybe, just maybe, we might remember this and import it into our Christmas celebration and emulate even the thoughts of the poor that we might look through the eyes of the impoverished And not only be thankful for every morsel of food that we're going to cram in our mouths and in our stomachs until we're absolutely full, but that we might give thanks for everything that is sitting before us, whether it's a gift we've received a hundred times, same t-shirt, whether it's cheap or whether it's expensive, that we might give thanks. And maybe in looking through the eyes of the impoverished and seeking to emulate the audience that God is calling us to look to, maybe, just maybe, it might produce in us a deep desire for the Lord's return when He wipes away every tear from every eye. Can you imagine looking through the eyes of the impoverished What it would be like to be sick without hope of a good doctor. 
Can you imagine what it would be like to feel the cold without any sense of warmth or any hope of warmth? Could you potentially look through the eyes of the impoverished and channel through that a deep felt need for Christ, your Savior? And could you think, He has come to save me? I titled this series, O Come All Ye Unfaithful, for a reason. Because Jesus' call to believe the gospel, you understand, is a call to repentance. It's a call to understand your unfaithfulness. It's a call to remember that every single day you are tempted and succumb to unfaithfulness. And the incarnation of Christ is a call to the unfaithful to come. If it was only, O come all ye faithful, who would be there? Jesus would be by himself. But it's also a call to recognize that if there is any faithfulness in me, it is a work that God has done on me. God has come in first. He has changed my heart, so if there is any faithfulness in me, it is not I, but Christ that lives in me. So coming to the incarnation of Christ is a recognition. I didn't provide any of this for myself. He didn't save me because I'm worthy. He saved me out of grace and mercy. Perhaps you're hoping for peace. Perhaps you're wanting to be the one with whom God is pleased. For in the eternal Son of God, who is in this scene lying in a manger, would grow up to suffer the wrath of God in your place. So that you might have eternal life. If that's a concern of yours, that you would not only have peace, but that you would be at peace with God, that you would be at peace with man, that you would be at peace with Christ, that you could faithfully come and worship Christ, I would urge you to repent of your sins. Just confess them right now. Confess them to Him. He already knows what they are. Confess your unbelief, your unfaithfulness. Ask Him to continue His work in you so that you might will and do what, it, what pleases Him. Ask Him for that. I trust that He will honor it. Perhaps you count yourself among His people. You're those for whom Christmas is a celebration of Christ's coming. I would encourage you, especially this Christmas, to take Paul's words to heart. The work that he has, that has been done to take your heart from an unbelieving heart to a believing one, is something only God could have done. When Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven, his disciples turn to him and say, then who can enter heaven? Do you remember how he responds to them? With man it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
all things, even taking you, the rich man, the man who lives in America and who has everything and who has copious amounts of gifts under the tree, he can take even your heart and my heart and bend it in reverence to him. Can make even the richest of men totally dependent on him. With God, all things are possible. With man, it's not possible. God, all things are possible. So what that means then for you, Christian, is be grateful. Be, be grateful. Emulate the poorest among us by being grateful in all things. That's what he's calling you to. Complete dependence on him and gratitude for all the things that he's giving to you like the poorest among us. Let no one say about you that you're cantankerous. That you're grouchy. The beggar who has truly found a treasure has nothing to complain about. So if you understand yourself to be that beggar who has found a treasure in Christ, then never let it be said of us that we're grouchy. Let it always be said of us that we're people of peace and people of praise.